we are always excited to see the way that God is, uh, is working. I, I love uh, the verse that Kathy mentioned, um, you know, that God loves a cheerful giver. I, it, it really is uh, one of the greatest joys uh, that we get to, to do every week. Uh, it has gone from being writing a check to, you know, checking the online app about, hey, good, our giving came out. <laughs> uh, and that's always a joy to see that in the, in the notifications there. A couple things uh, to make you aware of. Part of the purpose of the Excel campaign was to help you go to the next level in your, in your generosity to the Lord. And so this being Father's Day, uh, we wanted to do kind of a follow-up. At the beginning of the Excel campaign, uh, they, had, they handed out these little clips, these carabiner things you can keep your keys on. Uh, Fred has had his, on, his keys on his little red clip since it started two years ago. Uh, and so we thought it would be a cool follow-up. Those said Excel, and these say Next Level. Because the whole point of it was to encourage you to go to the next level, to just grow uh, the spirit of generosity in your heart. And so we want to encourage you, it being Father's Day, guys, as you head out of here, be sure to help you some people at the back with baskets. Uh, so pick up a new and revised uh, clip. Maybe if you lost one over the last couple years, here's your uh, chance at redemption. <laughs> um, but I want to encourage you to do that, just uh, snag that. And it's just a great reminder uh, of, the, of what God calls us to, to continue to grow in that grace of giving. Uh, also, one uh, bit of family news to make you aware of today, if you hadn't already heard, um, our brother Don Yeager went to his heavenly reward uh, this week. He passed away yesterday. Uh, we still don't have any arrangements yet, so we'll get that out probably in an email blast or something uh, once we know. Uh, but we did want to make you aware uh, that, uh, that Don has graduated to glory and his faith is now sight. And so we, uh, we grieve with his family, but praise God for his faith uh, and are excited about what uh, God is doing in his life. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we love you, and uh, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our fathers, and we pray, God, that you would bless our time together studying your word, that you would draw us closer into relationship with you, that you would draw our lives uh, more in line with the teaching of your word, and ultimately, God, that you would use this to make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I heard about a certain couple that worked very hard to send their only son off to college. They scrimped and they saved and they worked and they just squirreled away every little dollar they could to be able, and they, were, they, they hired a professional scholarship consultant to get this kid every dollar they could so that they could send him to a really great college. High reputation, great academics, amazing sports. They were so proud on registration day when they dropped off their boy that they got to send their son to this school and it was so prestigious and dad is just, you know, puffed up like a peacock. He's so proud of his boy that he's able to go to this college. And their pride soon changed to shame. <laughs> their son completely blew off his freshman year. Totally. Just, he just partied the whole time. He was irresponsible. He didn't study. He made terrible grades. He squandered the money they sent him. And he came home in that summer in disgrace with six D's and a C-. minus. His father said, son, we gave you every advantage we could, and you blew it. And so if you want to go back to that school, you are going to have to pay your own way. We're not going to help you, not one dime and you're going to have to work all summer long so that your mother and I can have some of our savings back. And you're not going to get to go on our big family vacation we've been planning to celebrate. Okay, Dad. 
So all summer he worked. Mom and dad went on a big trip around the world. They stopped off in Greece and visited the area uh, in ancient days that was known as Sparta. And the father sent his son a postcard. He, He wrote, Dear son, today we stood on the mountain where ancient Spartan women sacrificed their defective children. Wish you were here. Love, Dad. (laughs) So, uh, happy Father's Day. (laughs) I am glad you're here. If it's your first time here today, I'd love to meet you when we're done. I'll be down front. Please uh, come say hi. If you're joining us online, thanks for logging in from wherever you are. Uh, If you're local, we'd love to have you visit us on site uh, and just encourage you to stay tuned the whole time because you never know what God's going to do here at Chapel Rock. So we're we're excited about what uh, God is doing here today. We're going to be talking about what I think is the ultimate Father's Day text today. Open your Bibles to Genesis 22. Today's passage is Abraham's sacrifice, okay, attempted sacrifice of Isaac. For people of faith, this is one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament to understand. It's also one of the most important passages for us to understand. In our text, Abraham is told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering. And this is one of those stories that unbelievers and atheists pounce on in order to try to attack God's character. Most notably, uh, Richard Dawkins. In his book, The God Delusion, on page 31, he talks about God as revealed in the Old Testament accounts, like the one we're going to look at today, and he describes God this way. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. You'll catch his worldview there. The Bible isn't true. (laughs) It's fiction. Jealous and proud of it. Petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. (laughs) You should pray for that man. Because one day he's going to have to meet the person he just described. He, of course, is wrong. Very, very wrong. Do you think that accurately captures the character of our God? No, it does not. And for a very good reason. The reason that Dawkins' perspective is wrong is that it completely ignores the purpose and omniscience of God. Dawkins sees only God's actions, but he sees them through the lens of his own broken, fallen, sinful, warped, corrupted humanity. rather than from the perspective of a supremely powerful being who, by virtue of his role as creator and his total knowledge of the future, has both the power and the right to test and judge humankind. This story is difficult on the surface. Why would God tell Abraham to sacrifice his son? But it's also important. The reason why is a structural piece that we see in the text. This story happens several years after the events of chapter 21. And a significant amount of time passes before we go on to what we read in the rest of the chapter. I want you to notice this phrase. Look at at Genesis 22, verse 1. Look at this. It says, sometime later, years have passed. Okay. Now skip down to chapter 22, verse 20. 
sometime later. Same phrase. That's a bracket. It's a bookend on this text. What that means is that this text kind of stands alone in the timeline of Abraham's life. It's kind of in its own little pocket. And the reason is, this passage is the apex of Abraham's story. It's the peak. And so, as Moses is writing Genesis, he somewhat isolates this text in time. I think there was also truly some time that passed from chapter 21 to chapter 22, and some time that passed from uh, verse 19 to verse 20. That, that was literally true, but there's also a structural element here that tells us that Moses is trying to say, here's the apex of Abraham's story. Here's the climax of it. This shows that he really is a man of faith. Let's read this text together. Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. He replied, Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, no ambiguity there, and go to the region of Moriah, those are the mountains around Jerusalem. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. When it says fire, he, it was a little fire bundle, just a, a tiny little live coal that he could blow on and bring back to, to, to life in the fire. Okay? He carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? <laughs> Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Did you notice how the narrative slows down? Did you catch that? Every detail is mentioned. Every step in the process is mentioned. Why? They're drawing out the drama. They want, you, they want you as the reader to feel Abraham's heart twist inside him as he does this. He took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Same words as before. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son, so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, literally Jeho uh, what you would know as Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Jireh. To this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, because <laughs> there's no one greater for him to swear by. 
Because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. See, this passage makes it clear from the very beginning that this is a test, that God is testing Abraham here. Now, the book of James tells us God doesn't tempt us, but he does test us. God has absolutely no intention of letting Abraham carry out this sacrifice, but he is testing Abraham with this question. He's asking him, will you trust me if I take everything from you that is most precious to you? Even your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. He's saying, will you trust me if I take away everything? The renowned Holocaust survivor uh, Ellie Weasel describes the drama between God and Abraham with the term brinkmanship. They're trying to push each other to the edge. But I think this requires a certain bravado and, and cocky arrogance from Abraham that the text does not support. Abraham is not trying to challenge or prod or force God's hand. This passage is not some supernatural game of chicken. Who's going to blink first? <laughs> See, what's really happening in this passage, in this test, is that God is asking Abraham a question. He's asking him, will you still trust me if I'm all you have left? See, that's the big idea this morning. Faith means trusting God when he's all you've got. Faith means trusting God when he's all you have left. So how do you do that? How do you trust God when it feels like he's all you have? Well, I think we can see three really practical steps from Abraham's life in this passage. I, I want to spell them out, and, and they're in an order because they're in an order in the text, but they may not necessarily play out in this order in your life. It might get all mixed up and loopy. <laughs> but I think if, if you reach a point where you feel like, I, all I have left is God, <laughs> then this is what you need to do. Here's the first thing. Be ready to hear from God. Be ready to hear Him speak into your life. The first thing Abraham does is he shows that he's listening for God's voice. Two times, once in verse 1 and again in verse 11, Abraham says, here I am. And that's how we translate it, and it's a good translation, but literally in the Hebrew text, what he literally says is, behold, it's me. <laughs> it's the same thing that the priest Eli tells little boy Samuel to say to God. Same word. When God speaks to Samuel in the tabernacle in 1 Samuel Samuel, Samuel, <laughs> he runs into Eli, what? I didn't call you, go back to bed. He goes back to bed, Samuel, he runs into Eli, what? I didn't call you, go back to bed. He runs, it happens again, this is the Lord, you go back, and when you go back, he, he calls your name, you say, behold, it's me. Same idea. It's being ready, being listening for God's voice. <laughs> In these moments, maybe more than any other, Abraham becomes uh, the, the, the paradigm for people of faith. 
And it's important for us to see here that Abraham is just as ready to hear a message from God that I'm sure he did not want to hear as he is to hear God talk about how he's going to bless him. Did you catch that? Abraham's just as ready to hear him say what he says here as he is to hear him say, oh, I'm going to give you all this stuff. See, up to this point in the narrative, every time God speaks to Abraham, he tells him to do something that's ultimately going to be good for Abraham. It might be inconvenient for a while, but it's ultimately going to lead to his blessing. This is totally different. God's word to Abraham does not sound good. But it's key that you understand, that you note in the language to God's call to Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, the similarity with other key statements in the Gospels about Jesus. He says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and our ears on this side of the cross should go, man, that kind of sounds familiar. Well, it should. Look at Matthew 3.15. In Matthew, or 3.16, rather. In Matthew 3.16, it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Does that sound like Genesis 22? And then we get to John 3.16. And we read in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Does that sound like Genesis 22? It should. It should. God's word to Abraham is unmistakable. And Abraham is not real slow in obeying God. But there's a difference here from what we've read before. The last several passages that we've looked at, whenever God tells Abraham to do something, what's he do? Immediately he does it. There's no hesitation. There's no time that passes. When God says, Abraham, jump, he he doesn't even ask how high. He's just already on his way up, right? What's it say here? Early the next morning. There is a little time that he obeys, and he does it in short order. And we don't know, maybe God spoke to him late at night. He sleeps on it, assuming he slept. I don't know about you, if it was my kid, probably not. Early the next morning, he gets up, and he leaves. (laughs) The point is, every time God speaks to Abraham, he's ready to hear it. Bob Goff, who wrote the wonderful book Love Does, tells the story of how in his first year of marriage, his wife thought he had a hearing problem. So she made an appointment for him. And after the doctor put on the headphones, the doctor went into the other room and began the test. Bob was really disappointed. He says that it wasn't Van Halen playing in the earphones. Instead, it was a series of sounds. He heard every single one of them in absolute clarity. And after the test, the doctor sat down with Bob and his wife to go over the results. And the doctor confirmed that Bob could hear perfectly. And then said that Bob has what's known as selective hearing and tended to tune out the things he didn't want to hear, at which point he looked at his wife and she's glaring daggers at him. Bob writes, I realized that what was so frustrating for Maria was a similar issue I have with God. I only hear the things from God I want to hear and it makes me wonder if he doesn't think I'm going a little deaf. Now, please don't put up your hands, but how many of you are guilty of that too? 
See, it's my opinion that we are really good at hearing God say stuff like, I love you, I want to bless you, I have a wonderful plan for your life, and we are really bad at hearing God say things like, if you love me, obey me. If you love me, keep my commands. If you want to follow me, you've got to give up mother, father, sister, brother. (laughs) We don't like hearing that. We don't like hearing, we must suffer much to inherit the kingdom of God. And when we hear those things, our hearing tends to get a little selective. Real faith is always ready to hear God, no matter what He says. But it's not just enough to hear. We have to act on what we hear. That's the second thing we see. The second practical thing that Abraham does here in the text is really about what he doesn't do. (laughs) He doesn't hold anything back from God. The second practical thing we see in Abraham's story here is that he doesn't hold anything back. Don't hold anything back. There's a key phrase that appears several times in this text. The phrase is burnt offering or to sacrifice as a burnt offering. It's the Hebrew word olah. It literally means the whole burnt offering. This is the part of the animal that's a clean and acceptable sacrifice. They would lay the the, the victim of the sacrifice on the altar, everything in it, except for the hide and uh, the, the internal organs and stuff that were called unclean in the Jewish law. This sacrifice is then completely consumed entirely, and it goes up in the flame of the altar, uh, expressing the ascent of the soul in worship. The idea here is that every time you see the phrase burnt offering in the text, you need to realize there's an emphasis on the idea that it's the whole thing. Now, there were lots of sacrifices in the Old Testament, and and you can read uh, the latter half of Exodus and Leviticus, and you can read about what God commanded, how, how the sacrifices were supposed to go. And for many of those sacrifices, they would offer part of it, and then the person would eat part of it, and the priest would eat part of it. Not this one. This is a specific term for the whole thing. No one, the the priest offering the sacrifice, the person giving the sacrifice, they don't get any of it. God gets all of it, and it's this specific term that Moses picks up on and uses here. The whole burnt offering. You see, in the Old Testament, worship equaled sacrifice. (laughs) And therefore, Abraham's statement to his servants, we will worship, and then we will come back to you, is one of two things. It is either off the charts faith (laughs) because worship equals sacrifice and he knows Isaac, at least he believes, is going to die. We will worship and then we will come back? We will come back? It's either off the charts faith or it is a flat out lie. Now because of what Hebrews 11 says about Abraham, I'm going to go with faith. Okay? We'll look at that text in a little while. Abraham doesn't hold anything back from God not even his beloved son. Now, did you catch it? says your only son. Now, he had another, Ishmael, right? 13 years older. There was another kid. Isaac was not the only one, but Isaac is the son of the promise. Isaac is the son of the covenant. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, God says. He says, your only son. Don't hold anything back. And through the eyes of faith on this side of the cross, you're supposed to see the parallel here with Jesus. That God did not hold anything in reserve when he sent his son to die on the cross in our place for our sins. Jesus did not hold anything back from his redemptive mission. He fully embraced the cross. And just for a second, 
I want you to see this parallel. I'd never seen this before. I don't know why. Maybe you have. This is not going to be news to you. But this week when I was reading this, it broke me. Did you see the line? It's, uh, it's in verse 9. It says, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Wait, no, sorry. I got confused. Um, it's, uh, yes, verse 6, excuse me. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Do you realize he makes his boy carry the instrument of his own death? His sacrifice. And I remember seeing a picture of our Lord and Savior dragging a cross through the streets of Jerusalem and God laid the wood for his sacrifice on his own son. And he did that because he loves you. One of my favorite characters in all of English literature is Aragorn Elisar, the heir of Isildur in the book The Lord of the Rings. That guy. Aragorn comes from a line of kings who are quite long-lived, but uncharacteristically, his mother died very young. And in a scene, <laughs> we're going to go way down the nerd rabbit hole here for just a second. <laughs> in a scene from the appendix that's not even in the actual book, it's at the back of the third book, she says to her son, this is our last parting, Estelle. That's the elvish word for hope. That was his name. That's what they called him as a boy. She says, I am aged by care, even as one of lesser men, and now that it draws near, I cannot face the darkness of our time that gathers upon Middle Earth. I shall leave it soon. Aragorn tries to comfort her, saying, yet there may be a light beyond the darkness, and if so, I would have you see it and be glad. And she answered only with this saying in elvish, Onen i estel idayen, Ucheben estel anim, which means I give hope to the men of the West. I keep none for myself. In other words, she didn't hold anything back. <laughs> she gave up her claim on her son. And the point in all this, if you'll pardon my nerdiness, is that she gave the world her son, who with some help from a couple hobbits and a wizard pretty much saved the world and in so doing held nothing back. And I think God would have us have the same attitude. What would your life look like if you held nothing back from God? Because you all have those areas. I have those areas, that dark corner, that little closet where you'd really rather Jesus not go into that room in your heart. Oh, Lord, please, you don't want to go in there. It's a mess, Lord. You don't want to go in there. What would your life look like if you opened up all the doors and turned on all the lights and didn't hold anything back from God? Because we've all got those areas where God is not allowed to speak to us in that area. And maybe it's your money, or maybe it's a physical appetite, either of your stomach or for food or drink or another's body, I don't know. Maybe it's for position and power. I don't know what your thing is, but I want to encourage you to imagine this week what your life might look like if you quit holding back some of those areas from God and surrendered them. And I know that might be scary, but this passage comes with a promise for us when we do the third very practical thing that Abraham did. 
When everything is said and done, Abraham simply obeyed God and he trusted him with the outcome. That's the third thing, that we need to obey God and trust him with the outcome. We see this in Abraham's conversation with Isaac. Isaac realizes that they're nearing the place of sacrifice. He gets that there's no animal. We don't know how old he was. The historian Josephus says that he was 25 at this point. I don't buy it. You know why? I'll tell you why. It's in the text. It says in verse 9, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar. He's a hundred years old. You think he's going to pick up a 25-year-old strapping young man and pick him up? I doubt it. I bet he's 10. I don't know for sure. I could be totally wrong about that. But I, 10, 11, 12 is, is that age where they're old enough to perceive what's going on and ask some questions. <laughs> huh, I, I, wait a minute here. Starting to put two and two together. Isaac asks about the sacrifice. Abraham responds, God himself will, be, will provide. And if Abraham here strikes us as unconcerned, maybe even cold and callous to somebody like Richard Dawkins, then it's probably because we haven't wrapped our heads around the idea about what it means to obey God and just trust him with the outcome. Abraham's not cold and callous. He's not uncaring here. I, I guarantee you, as a dad, his heart is twisting in him the whole time. You remember, Abraham has walked with God for decades by this point. We don't know how old he was when God called him. We, we, we really don't know. But Abraham has walked with God longer than a lot of you have been alive. He knows the character of God. He knows that this command to sacrifice his son is not in keeping with the character of God. But he's going to obey him and trust him with the outcome. That's how his faith works. He knew God's character and that this is opposed to it. <laughs> Which is instructive for us even in this detail in the text. Because I want to tell you this morning, if you ever get a sense that you're hearing something from God and it does not match His character as revealed in His Word, evaluate that. I don't know about you, but if I heard the voice of God tell me to sacrifice my own children, I think I'd ask for some ID. you get a sense that God is telling you something from Scripture, or from, if he's, God is telling you something and it doesn't match what you see in Scripture, you need to check for ID. <laughs> First John tells us to test the spirits. Evaluate those things. And Isaac is trusting God too. He totally obeys his dad. I want to show you something. This is so precious. I, it's such a powerful image of the surrender of Jesus Christ and the way our lives should look for a child to just so simply and fully trust his father to just obey. I want to show you a video. It's a video of a little kid in the backseat of a car. He's really tired, and his dad is trying to help him. Watch. Hey, buddy, you tired? Yeah. Yeah. Can't keep your eyes open? Yeah. Yeah. You've been nodding off a little bit. Yeah. I see him blinking. It's okay, buddy. Yeah. If you want to go to sleep, I can. You go ahead, go to sleep. I'll. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
coge. <laughs> what would your life look like if you obeyed God like that? What would your life look like if you listened to your heavenly father like that? You go ahead and do this. Okay. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Okay. Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Okay. Husbands, love your wives. Okay. Wives, respect your husbands. Okay. Love your neighbor. Okay. Love your enemy. Okay. What if we just decided to obey and trust God with the results? That's what Abraham does here. That's what he does. He knew God, and because he knew God by faith, he was able to trust God with the outcome. He trusted God through the most severe trial in his life, and he believed that God would make good on his promise to give him unnumbered descendants through Isaac. That's why Abraham was able to obey God in this moment. Look at what Hebrews 11, 17 says. Look at this. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, remember this is a test, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God said, had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Get this, look at this. Abraham reasoned, stop. Do not believe the lie that is common today that faith and reason are in opposition to one another. That is a lie. Do you see this? Abraham reasoned. Your faith and your reason can go hand in hand. Abraham reasoned that God might even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. I want you to hear me this morning. Abraham's faith was marked by this one idea that he, tr- he would obey God and trust him with the results. And there's one more really important thing we need to see here in verse 16 through 18. Based on my study, this is the only passage where all four of the major covenant promises of God come together in one place. Where God said, I swear by myself, because there's nobody higher to swear by, he says, I will bless you, number one. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, number two. I will give them this land, number three. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed, number four. This is the only place where all four of those covenant promises of God come together in one spot. Why? Because of Abraham's faithful obedience to just obey God and trust him with the results. Maybe that's instructive for us, that if you want to experience all the blessings of God, all the blessings of being in the covenant, it's important to obey and trust him with the results. See, ultimately, this statement here in Genesis 22 is what promises our redemption as well. We are the all nations who are blessed because of Abraham's obedience. Back in 2014, Israeli doctors managed to save a six-year-old Syrian boy whose siblings and mother's, mother had died in a bombing. Uh, IsraelNationalNews.com reports this story. A Syrian boy has walked out of Israel's uh, Rambam hospital on his own two feet after arriving in critical condition with a head injury that had left him in a coma. Uh, Six-year-old K, they don't give his name, just the initial of it, was brought to Israel by his father after suffering life-threatening injuries in an explosion. 
The same blast that killed his mother and sister also wounded his older brother who later died of his injuries. The father begged the Israeli medical team, save him, he's all I have left. And they did. Through multiple operations that were hours long, the doctors relieved the pressure on his head, they put his skull back together, and the boy began a long rehabilitation process that restored him pretty much to where he was before the accident. Save him. He's all I have left. On this Father's Day, when our hearts can't help but be moved by that story, it's especially true when you consider that the story of Abraham is essentially the inverse of this. And not only Abraham, but our story too. Our Father in heaven sacrificed the life of his son, his only son, whom he loved. Our Father in heaven sent his son on a three-day journey into death. Our Heavenly Father loaded the wood for the offering on the back of his son and marched him up a mountain near Jerusalem. For Jesus, there was no ram in the thicket. There was no substitution for him because he was our substitution. And so when God asks you, will you trust me if I'm all you've got left? He's not asking you to do anything he himself didn't already do. He's paved the way. He did this for you. As Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also along with, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If you will trust God to the point where he's all you'll have left, you will find that he is enough. And ultimately, that's the apex of faith. Did you hear me this morning? Faith means trusting God when he's all you have left. Is he enough for you today? We're going to have a time for you to respond to the message of God's word today. Maybe you need to spend some time in prayer. We're going to have folks down front who are ready to pray with you. Maybe there's an area where you need to hear from God in your life where there's something you're wrestling with and and you need God to speak. You want to have this position of being ready to hear and and obey. And so you're going to want to come forward as we sing together in a moment and and there'll be people here to pray with you and pray for you that that you'll be able to hear God. Maybe there's something here today and and it's an area you've been saying, no, Jesus, don't go in there. And it's an area you've been holding back. I would encourage you as we sing together under the yellow awning is our next step room. We have leaders in there who'd who'd love to be a a filter for your experience. They they can have a conversation with you about that area and and what it's going to take for you to open that up to God and and to let him speak into that part of your life, that little dark corner that you've been hiding. Of course, you're not really hiding it. (laughs) He knows. And maybe you're here today and you want to avail yourself of the blessing that Jesus has given you when he died on the cross in your place for your sins, when he gave his perfect life as a substitution for your brokenness. You want to confess Christ as Lord and be baptized and walk in a life of discipleship. I'm not sure what God is doing in your heart today, but you have an opportunity to respond. Let's stand and sing together this morning as we respond to God's word.
amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Fears really. 